You are listening to Rabbi Arya Wolby of Torch in Houston, Texas. This is the Parsha Review Podcast. All right, welcome back, everybody. It is so incredible to be here for the weekly Parsha Review. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Miketz. It is the 10th portion in the book of Genesis, the 10th portion since the beginning of the Torah. And there are 146 verses, 2,022 words, and 7,900 and 14 letters in this week's Parsha. There are no performative or prohibitions in uh, mitzvahs in this week's Parsha. And I want to dedicate today's class to the healing of Rivka Bat Esther. She should have a speedy recovery. We love her, and we want her to be healed and uh, healthy for many, many more years to come. Okay, so this week's Parsha begins with the quick redemption. It is two more years that Yosef is in prison. As you recall, last week, Joseph asked the butler, he says, when you go back to Pharaoh, remember me? And he was punished for two more years. Our sages tell us, we ended off last week, that he didn't remember Joseph, and he forgot him. Our sages tell us that this is showing the greatness of Yosef, that Yosef put his effort forward, but put no trust in that that effort was going to do anything. Everything is from Hashem. And Vayishkache, who even forgot that he ever spoke to that individual because he wasn't putting his reliance on a human. He was putting his reliance only on Hashem. So it was two more years that Yosef is now in prison and Pharaoh has two dreams and doesn't like any of the interpretations. The first dream was that he sees seven fat cows swallowed by seven skinny cows. And the second dream is that he sees seven fat ears of grain are swallowed by seven lean ears of grain. Pharaoh's butler then recalls to Pharaoh that a Hebrew in prison accurately interpreted his dream. Yosef is instantly released from prison and brought quickly to Pharaoh. Now, we have a very similar instance when we, if we recall in the Megillah of Esther, we have Mordechai, is sitting in sackcloth and ashes, sitting on the floor and mourning that the Jewish people are about to be executed on the 13th day of Adar. And suddenly, he's getting rushed by the messengers of the king. Quickly, quickly, you are supposed to be like royalty, sitting on a white horse, on the king's horse, wearing the king's garments. He's like, but look at me, I'm disheveled. Look at me, I haven't showered, I haven't gotten, I haven't, uh, you know, trimmed my beard and gotten my, taken a haircut and they said quickly, and they, they took care of him and cleaned them up, and same thing happened to Yosef. Yosef was in the prison. He was at the lowest point and instantly was taken all the way to the palace, and we'll see in a minute, to royalty. Yosef, with Hashem's help, interprets that soon will begin seven years of abundance, followed by seven years of severe famine. Yosef tells Pharaoh to appoint someone wise to store grain, in preparation for the famine, and Pharaoh appoints Yosef, who at the time is only 30 years old, as viceroy to oversee the project. So Yosef, 20 minutes ago, was in the prison, and now he's viceroy, second in command over the entire Egypt. Now, just so that you understand what Egypt was at the time, Egypt was the superpower, the superpower of the world. It was the wealthiest country by far in the world. It was the most luxurious and most materialistic country in the world as well. And here Yosef becomes the 
viceroy or second in command to Pharaoh, where Pharaoh was basically checked out and Yosef is running the country. Pharaoh gives Yosef an Egyptian name called Tzafnas Paneach, which means explainer of the hidden and obscure. Yosef then marries Osnat, which is, who's the daughter of Potiphar. You remember the wife of Potiphar tried to seduce Joseph in a vision, in a prophetic vision. She saw that her descendants were going to come from Yosef. So she thought she was the one who was supposed to bring about those descendants. It was really her daughter who was supposed to bring out those descendants. They have two sons, Menashe and Ephraim. Then comes the famine. Egypt becomes the granary of the world and the famine begins. People from surrounding lands are hungry. Yaakov and his sons are starving. Yaakov sends his sons to Egypt to go buy food. So now we're going to see two different meetings that the brothers have with Yosef. The 10 brothers, except for Binyamin, Binyamin is where there are 12 brothers overall, right? There's 12 brothers. Yosef is in Egypt already. And Binyamin is the youngest and most precious son left to Yaakov. And Yaakov doesn't want to let go. He's ready. I already lost Yosef. I don't want to lose Binyamin too. So 10 brothers, sans Binyamin, arrive in Egypt and come before Yosef for grain and bow to him. Yosef recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. Mindful of his dreams, Yosef acts like an Egyptian overlord and is very harsh with them, speaking through a translator, accusing them of being spies. Yosef sells them food, but keeps Shimon hostage until they bring their brother Binyamin back as proof of their honesty. Yosef directs his servants to replace the purchase money into their sacks. So they paid for this food, and he says, put the money back in their sacks. I don't need their money. On the journey back to Canaan, they discover their money and their hearts sink. Upon hearing everything that transpired, Yaakov refuses to let Binyamin go, saying, I already lost Yosef, and now Shimon is in prison too. Do you also want to take Binyamin from me? When food runs out and Yehuda personally guarantees Binyamin's safety, Yaakov agrees to send Binyamin. And then the ten brothers go back to Egypt for the second meeting with Yosef. The ten brothers return to Egypt and now eleven brothers bow to Yosef because now Shimon is with them. So this is the fulfillment of that prophecy that we spoke about last week. Yosef graciously welcomes them to a state dinner at his palace. Yosef prophetically assigns seating to biological siblings. Upon seeing Binyamin, he rushes from the room and weeps. He sees his biological brother and is so sad but also happy to see his brother for the first time. Yosef instructs his servants to replace the money again into the sacks and to also put his goblet inside Binyamin's sack. When the goblet is discovered, the brothers are horrified. Yosef demands Binyamin remain a slave as punishment, and Yehuda offers that all remain as slaves, but Binyamin be set free, and Yosef declines that offer. So let's look at some important lessons into this week's Parsha. The first, after 12 years in prison, who wouldn't give up hope? 12 years, he's rotting away, and it's not like you have a justice 
where you have a legitimate rule of law, where there was, you know, a um, an appeals process. There was a parole uh, meeting where hopefully you'd be granted parole and you'd be let out of prison. This is Egypt. There are no laws like that. And Yosef is rotting away in prison. And in the total instant, one magical moment, he's not only pulled out of prison, but he's pulled to the place of greatness. We need to understand that each one of us have our own little prisons that we're in. It could be the prison of a a bad job, a prison of a bad career, a prison, whatever that is. If we maintain our bitachon, our trust in Hashem, if we're able to maintain our relationship with, with Hashem like Yosef did, wherever Yosef went, he was in the most dire, challenging situation and always rose to the top. Like the the image of Yosef being thrown into a pit, meaning go, falling down to the lowest point, but always rose up. He was put in the prison, rose up. He was in Egypt, rose up to the top. Wherever he was, he was always at the top. He was at the, in the house of Potiphar, became the manager of the house, the CEO of everything that goes on in that house. Yosef was a personality who was always committed to excellence. He was always committed to doing whatever it takes to be at the top, to be at your very, very best. I think it's an important lesson for us to never give in to our circumstances. Never give in and say, you know what? I'm just resigning to the idea that I'm, I'm you know, it's just going to be like this. No. Have hope. Hope is so powerful. Not empty hope. Hope in that there's a creator who loves you, who cares about you, who is committed to your well-being. And in one instant, in one instant, everything can turn around. What greater lesson do we need than the holiday we're celebrating today like Hanukkah? We're in what looked to be a losing battle. You had a few chashmanayim, a few sons of Yochanan Kohen Gadol. You had a few and they beat the many. The weak defeated the strong. Imagine we have, say, you know, a group of us here right now. Imagine now a, a whole military comes to, to wage war against us. Like, what do we do? We're not skilled, you know, marksmen. I mean, you are, you are. But but I don't know about me, you know. It's like, but it's like, what do we have? Like, we just like, imagine we defeat an entire army with all of their tanks, with all of their missiles, with all of their protective gear, and we defeat them all. It would be an unbelievable miracle. That's what happened to the Jews. And that's what each and every one of us have our own little miracle of Hanukkah where we're able to overcome the natural. That's why Hanukkah is eight days, because it's supernatural. The rules don't apply. And that's what we're celebrating is we recognize that the Jewish people, our very existence doesn't make any sense. It's supernatural that we exist as a people. The Jewish people shouldn't be around. Statistically, we're such a speck of the world population and yet make the largest impact. It doesn't make any sense. 
right? Anybody can anybody here name one of the two billion people living in India? Anybody? Anybody? We don't know anybody. How many? How many great thinkers came out of you know all of the Arab countries combined? How many of them have uh, Nobel Peace Prizes? Well, thirty-three percent of them are Jewish. From what that little microcosmic Israel? It, 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 we're defying the natural course of this world. We have to remember that the only way for us to persevere, the only way for us to to continue to grow and be a great people is through our relationship with Hashem. And that's what Yosef teaches us. Yosef teaches us that even after 12 years in prison, boom, he's out. The next important lesson is that we see he changed his attitude because last week when he interpreted the dreams for the butler and the baker, he just interpreted the dreams as a Yosef. But now when he interprets the dream for Pharaoh, after two more years in prison, he had time to internalize. One second, I need to be humble. I need to recognize that every single ability that I have is from the Almighty. And he attributes it now to Hashem. What Hashem will grant me as the interpretation of your dream, Pharaoh, is what I'll have. It's only what Hashem gives me. It's just a change of of words, and the change of words changes the attitude. It changes also the spiritual dynamics. When a person says things that are positive, things become positive. When a person says things that are negative, things are perceived as negative and things become negative for them. You create your reality. And Yosef is instilling that Hashem is in charge of everything. And therefore, that becomes his reality. He feels the hand of Hashem wherever he goes. So we know that the story of the seven years of famine are repeated six times. Six times the story of the famine is repeated. Pharaoh tells the story, and then he tells it to the interpreters, and he tells it to Yosef, and then it gets repeated four, uh, six times. There's a total of 42, meaning each seven years, it's 42 years, the famine is going to last. But it only got reduced to two years of famine. We'll see soon what we're talking about. Another thing that just very interesting, that Yosef is the first, first person to talk about savings accounts. Savings accounts. You think it was Wells Fargo? No. It was Joseph's Bank of Egypt that says, guess what? You're going to have seven years of plenty and then you're going to have seven years of famine. It's a worthwhile exercise to save up for a rainy day. Now, there's a very important distinction that I, I, I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about. And that is our world that we live in today is completely convinced that financial security, I'm going to put away money, I'm going to have money for my retirement, I'm going to have money for this, and then I have nothing to fear because God is not in charge, is he? Is God really in charge? And people are putting their trust in their own selves, in their own money, and that's a huge mistake. 
Hashem can take care of you even without a retirement account. Is it a good thing to do? Yes, but don't rely on it and not rely on Hashem. It's a good thing to plan, and it's a good thing to get a life insurance policy, and it's a good thing to have insurance, and it's a good thing to put away money for the future. But don't put all your reliance on that. Put your reliance on Hashem. Hashem will take care of you. And you know what? And if something happens and you need to pull it out, Hashem will take care of it. Hashem is the master of the universe. You think he can't take care of your account? He can take care of it. So to never, ever remove our trust from Hashem. Yosef plots for his brother's arrival. So we said that he accused them all of being spies. What Yosef did is he did, like we did for many, many years at our classes, we had sign-in sheets. Yosef had a sign-in sheet at every entrance to Egypt. And now the brothers came, they all separated. And why did they separate? Because they didn't want to come as a family of 10 brothers. People are going to say, wow, they're going to put the evil eye on them. Like, look, look, what an amazing family, 10 children. In fact, I'll tell you something very interesting. We have to be very careful about the evil eye. There's an old Jerusalem custom that when they see a baby, a baby, everyone says, oh, it's so cute, it's so beautiful. What a baby, right? They don't do that because that would put an evil eye on the baby. So what they do is they spit and they say, ugh, what an ugly baby. And that's like, everyone's like, oh, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. It's like, it's like the opposite because you don't want to put the evil eye on the baby. You don't want to, you know, God forbid, put this... It's not only with babies. It's in everything in life. We have to be concerned about not putting an evil eye on it. I'll just share with you one quick story to give you an an example to this. My father bought a brand new car back in 1989. It was the new Toyota Camry. I was like, wow. It was the wow. Like, like I remember when my father came home late at night with the car. I was I was already asleep. The next morning, I get into the car, and my father's like, "Welcome to the cockpit!" Right? It was like it was like all you know, really excited about his new car, all the buttons. It was like okay. And my uncle came to visit a few days later. He was visiting from overseas, and he just wanted to run to Seven Eleven probably to get a pack of cigarettes. I don't know. I assume. And he comes back, and the blinker light on the corner of the car was punched out he hit the little thing and he punched out that light and i was like to my father like this is a brand new car like you know we're gonna fix this light we got to go get it fixed my father till the day he sold that car never fixed that light it was just the glass the light was still working but the glass that covered it and it was like almost like a sore it was a sore view. Like you look at the car, it's a brand new, beautiful car. Everything's shiny. Everything is, is sparkling and it has that broken light. He said, that's to remove the evil eye. And to the day he sold that car, which was years later, that broken light was there. You know what? Not everything needs to be perfect. I have a perfect wife. I have perfect children. My car doesn't need to also be perfect. It's something that it, to, to pay attention to, how do other see, people perceive what it is that we have? A little humility, a little something. doesn't need to be perfect. 
tell you one more quick story to to bring about this. You know, the, the Talmud says that ain chupa below tigra. There's no chupa. There's no wedding without a struggle, without a a, a fight, a little disagreement. You know, you have you get together with your future mechotanim, right? You get together to make the plans and make arrangements. It's always going to be something that's like that, a little tense, right? A little something. So one of my siblings, their family, the mechatanim, were like so easy and so like whatever, whatever my parents, like they were like, we're fine with everything, no problem. There was like nothing, nothing, like nothing went wrong. It's like, it's like my father was a little concerned. He's walking my brother down the chuppah and he's thinking nothing, nothing. There was like, everything was so smooth. Something's got to go. Like, you know, it's like the Talmud says something has to go. And while my father's walking my brother down the chuppah, they had this beautiful flower arrangement that went over the, the aisle. And the stand of the flowers got caught in my father's suit. And the whole thing went flying down. And my father smiled. He says, thank you, Hashem. Finally, something went wrong, right? So it... Not on top of him, but it was it was so it was so beautiful that like he was looking. Something's got to go wrong. Something, because we, we you know we we have to realize that people are looking at us and people are are paying attention, and we don't want to cause call too much attention to us. It can bring about negative things. The brothers were very conscious of this when the tribes come down to Egypt, like ten strong, muscular tribes. Righteous people, they're going to walk in through one door. They're going to be like, whoa, what a family. So they all went in through different doors. Yosef used that, says, oh, you guys are just trying to spy. And that's how he accused them of being spies. He knew what their real intention was, but his goal was he wanted to see his brother Binyamin, number one. Number two is he wanted to see that they did Teshuvah. And we'll see that in next week's Torah portion. We'll see that he tests them to see if they're going to stand up for Binyamin. Because they didn't stand up for him. Did they repent? They, did, they, did they change their ways? Yaakov is extremely reluctant. He's like, bring your other brother back. He wants, it's an amazing thing. Yaakov, the father, when they come to him and they tell him the story, he's like, no, no, no. Bring your brother back. It's a very important lesson here. Our sages tell us. It's Eich Ele El Ovi Vanar Einenu Itano, where the brothers ask, How are we going to go back to our father and our brother is not with us? Sages tell us it's a great message for torch. How can we, Jewish people, return to the Almighty, El Avi, our father in heaven, and our brothers, our brethren, are not with us? Brethren who don't know about Torah. Brethren who don't know about Judaism, who don't know what a menorah is, who don't know what mitzvahs are. That's our job, is to be like the, those brothers of the, the tribes who are concerned for their brethren. That's why we spoke before about sharing the wisdom that you know, sharing the wisdom that you have, whether it be on Facebook, on Instagram. You don't have, you don't have to be a rabbi to be an influencer in Judaism. Every person learns something. You learn something. You come to classes. Share that with the world. Be a light to your brethren. Yosef dines with Binyamin, who details his family and children named for Yosef. This is one of the things that Yosef was overwhelmed with when he met Binyamin, is that 
he's like a total stranger. Binyamin doesn't know this is his brother. But Yosef sees this is his brother Binyamin, his younger brother that he never met before. And he sees that Binyamin relives the life of Yosef in the sense that he names his children after Yosef. He has right he, all different names that are all relating to Yosef. Binyamin see Yosef sees, wow, they haven't forgotten me, and he gets emotional from that, and he, he needs to he leaves, and he needs to weep, he needs to cry. He's so overwhelmed with emotion, he can't show that as a viceroy. He can't show that emotional side. Our sages tell us that the geula, the final redemption, but all redemptions of the Almighty are planted and hidden. It's all here already, the future redemption, but it's hidden. You know, It's not out in the open. The redemption of the Jewish people was also hidden. What? 210 years later, the Jewish people are going to be freed from Egypt? That redemption, when did it start? It started years back when Yosef went down. Hashem prepared the, the groundwork. He laid the foundation for the Jewish people, as we'll see in next week's Torah portion, when there is the total descent of the Jewish people, Yaakov and his children, to Egypt. What's there? Yosef is going to open up the red carpet for them. He's going to have an entire city dedicated so that they can learn Torah, so that they can live in peace. What? And for the next 210 years of slavery, that city remained a city of Torah. And that's why the tribe of Levi, they were the scholars. They learned Torah. They were not enslaved in the slavery of Egypt. We'll see that next week. And this is the final test for the brothers to see their cure for their brother. This test that we see with Yosef questioning his brothers, investigating his brothers, this is the test that he wants to see. Are they different people than they were in the past. It's such a powerful parsha. I highly recommend and urge everyone, take a few minutes, read through the parsha, just read it. The words will like jump off the pages. It is such an incredible story. I want to wish everyone a good Shabbos and thank you all for listening.